Hi there, this is Emily, and before we begin today, I wanted to hop on and let you know that we've opened up a new Bibliophiles podcast discussion group on Facebook. So if you've always wished that you could join in on the conversation and have a seat at the Bibliophiles table, now's your chance. The whole goal of this podcast is discussion and exploring big ideas through the model of the great conversation. And so we hope to cultivate that atmosphere inside the group. So if you'd like to join us, there'll be a link to the group in today's show notes, and we hope to see you inside. Now, without further ado, on to the show. Welcome to Bibliophiles, a podcast for lit lovers. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to fresh bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Welcome back, everyone. Another edition of Bibliophiles on tap for you today. Adam Andrews here, as usual, leader of the Center for Lit crew, joined by the crew itself, my wife, Missy. Hi. My son, Ian. Well, hey. And his lovely wife, Emily. Hi. Good to hear you guys. Good to hear you. Shall we Wait dive? Since we were together, um, the interim, however, is something that listeners absolutely must know about. Well, oh, I was okay. I was going to say I'd almost forgotten the pattern for the beginning of a Bibliophiles <laughs> episode because I have literally been out of the country. Missy and I went to Europe for the very first time together over the last couple of weeks and are back ready to rock and roll and all things American, but having had a marvelous time, wouldn't you say, Miss? Oh, absolutely. We had so much fun. That was fine, but I just feel like the delivery suffered a little bit from, that was underwhelming. Okay. okay. How long have you been waiting to go to Europe? We've been waiting to go to Europe for like 27 years. 27 years. 27 years. And we did it. We went to Paris for four days and experienced the beauty of that city and explored all of its treasures. And then we is this better, Ian? Is this, zipped is this over. Better? Much better. We zipped over to England and we saw the White Cliffs of Dover and Canterbury <clears> Cathedral, <throat> and thought about Chaucer the whole time. And of then you did. we drove across southern England to Oxford and made it kind of our um, our staging ground and enjoyed Your the spires base. and the cathedrals and listened to Evensong and explored the Bodleian Library and yeah. um, Blackwell's Bookstore. We we just kind of steeped in the history of the city. History, history, schmistry. I put 574 miles on an English rental car driving on the wrong side of the road. <laughs> well, that's what I was just about to say. Without one accident. We did excursions out into the country. We saw the Cotswolds and the North Wessex Downs and the Meldip Hills. Is that right, Adam? Were there uh, cathedrals? Yeah. Was there stained oh, glass? There was Salisbury Cathedral. which Were there the crowds of, of famous Carter. poets? Oh, there was Westminster Abbey with Poets' Corner, but more particularly, there was St. Paul's Cathedral with John Donne's grave. I was very excited to go so there. So, what was the what was the shrine? Where where what was the most religious moment on this whole trip? The where did where did moment. most of the genuflecting take place? <laughs> oh, well, I think it would have to be. I'm totally upstaging you. You you. No, no, please go ahead. I was going to tell about the time we saw the Magna Carta, and then four days later, somebody tried to steal it with a hammer, and it made the world news. Oh, yeah. Well, there's that. But I was going to tell about um, the day that we went to see C.S. Lewis's house, um, the kiln. There it is. And then went to his grave to pay our respects. 
Was there anyone at his grave? No, it was really an amazing experience. We went to the kilns, uh, like mom said, to see his house and, and it was deserted. So we stood on the curb and took a couple of fan pictures and then all we, by yourself. We went to his, the, the Holy Trinity parish yeah, where he totally by ourselves. But worshiped. I think if he were still alive, he would have invited us in for tea. Oh, I'm sure There's, there was nobody yeah, in the churchyard either. And so we, we got a feeling of the churchyard and took a picture of his grave and then completed our pilgrimage by going back to his famous pub in Oxford, the Eagle and Child and having dinner in seats where he presumably sat to eat. And it was, um, as it was as religious, it was as pilgrimage an experience as a guy like me can have. What I'll say about it is, and I'll say a lot, what I'll say about it <laughs> is that after seeing these shrines and these really ostentatious memorials for yeah. all these great men, um, to go to C.S. Lewis's grave was really kind of a spiritual experience because it was so common. Um, just a regular tombstone in the ground, flat, and it, it had a leer quote on it, men must endure their going hence, and that's it. And the, the churchyard was, was typical, English, small country churchyard. The church, there wasn't a lot of fanfare. There was one little window that someone had donated that had etched an etched glass rendering of the characters and scenes from, uh, from his Narnia stories. And that's about it. Not a lot of fanfare. It, it just really made me reflect on... First of all, how short a lifespan is. Yeah, for sure. You know, oh, man. and how even great men are so quickly forgotten. But more than that, I felt like I, I know, I kind of feel like I know him. Yeah. Probably a lot like he felt like he knew George MacDonald because mm -hmm. that was his, uh -huh. his mentor, you know, and he wrote him into to works like The Great Divorce as his mentor in that particular story. But once you've read a bunch of his works or anyone's works for that matter, you do feel like you, you know them to an extent. You know, you know, mm. part of them, they've revealed a significant portion of who they are to you in their literature, you know, their voice. And, um, I, I felt like it was really appropriate. Like we were not there because we were lit buffs or history buffs, um, on the trail, but because we were paying our respects to a friend who'd really mm. served us over the cool. years. I, I second that. I think it's, it's the, the, the connection of literature between, uh, the living and the dead is really alive and palpable. I, uh, I got the same feeling standing by Chaucer's grave, believe it or not, even though the the separation is is many more centuries mm -hmm. than it is between me and C.S. Lewis. You don't get the same effect with Edward the Black Prince. <laughs> no, not so I'm much. sure you don't. Who I stumbled upon, whose grave I stumbled upon in Canterbury Cathedral. A pretty amazing experience, I have to say. Well, you guys, that's just, what a great trip. It was great. me. I, I wanted everyone to hear about it because it was such a shot in the arm for us to hear about it. And so if this is supposed to be welcoming listeners into the living room, this is what the living room conversation has been like. <laughs> well, I wish I could have you days. all over for a good English tea with scones and clotted <laughs> cream, which I've recently mastered, and show you our slides. <laughs> because yeah, everybody wants to slides. see somebody else's travel we'll pictures. Post, that's right. <laughs> Maybe we'll post a couple in the Pelican Society or something along those lines. Oh, that's look, fun. there's me asking for directions. <laughs> Uh, well, well, thanks for sharing. That thank was awesome. you. And I pre we appreciate the opportunity to um, unburden ourselves of our travel glories. We did have a topic on this on the slate for today, however, which had to do with something a little bit more specifically literary and maybe even oriented towards teaching literature. And that had to do with the creation of book lists of the making of book lists. Of course, there is no end among good readers <laughs> and good parents and maybe good homeschoolers. 
And I thought that today we would kind of throw the question out, how does one go about making a book list? What are some of the pitfalls? Why do we, why do we start making them in the first place? And if, is there any advice or encouragement that we Center for Lit Denizens can offer to the book list making public? So maybe of all of those questions, I just pick one at random. What is the, talk to me, you guys, about your experience of the urge to make a book list. What goes into it? What do we use them for? Why are we book list makers? Oh, man. Um, what I've noticed about book lists is I have one. Um, and once a book arrives on that list, it is less and less likely by the day that I will ever read it. <laughs> because the because the books on that list are there because, oh, I really ought to read that at some point. Not because I'm interested necessarily, but because it's the sort of book that one puts on a list oh, that you'll eventually hilarious. get to. And so my book list is, I mean, I don't know, probably 50 titles long. And it is so unlikely that I will actually read those books. Because they're obligations the moment you put them on yes. the list? As soon as they end up on the list, they, they, they take on an air of sort of um, improbability. <laughs> and I sort of, uh, I look at them from afar and think, well, as soon as I have mental time to spend on this, or as soon as I am feeling adventurous or diligent or uh, like I could go accomplish something, then maybe I'll take up one of those books. But then your life doesn't really have room for that. You're too busy. You're, gonna, you're doing other things. And so I end up reading the books that I'm going to teach this year and reading a fantasy novel or two to rest my brain. And and the books that make it on the book list never get read. So when I actually come find a book that I'm interested in, I don't add it to the list. <laughs> you just put, you just buy it and read it, right? Yeah, pretty much. So the, the list is actually a hedge against reading. Apparently, that's, that's what I've come to. That is awesome. But Ian, I, I why do you put about that before? So you put them on the, the list in the first place because you figure you ought to have read them. Yes, it's an ought to most of the time. And um, some of them are interests. Like I, um, I haven't ever really read any Graham Greene. I would oh. love to read some Graham Greene at some point. And I'm interested. I'm actually interested. But then also that statement. Listen to that statement. I would love to read some Graham Greene. That communicates that I know who this author is. I've heard good things about him. It's been heavily recommended to me. And so, of course, I want to read some Graham Greene. Any self-respecting book nerd would. Right. But which one do you start with? Well, that's a whole nother question. And do you, is there a series involved? Maybe you ought to go read a particular series. And I mean, just I, ain't nobody got time for that at some point. Mm -hmm. So you end up reading a book that someone looks you in the eye and hands you and says, read this. It's great. And the book list just waits and waits and waits. Maybe I'm too young to have found a time in my life where the book list comes out and actually helps you decide how to spend your time. Maybe that is off down in the I future for me. But. It may be a personality thing. I suspect, Emily, that you would answer the question mm -hmm. a little differently just because of knowing you and knowing Ian and, and knowing that the two of you are not exactly the same in every way. Well, how would you say? <laughs> I mean, I'm definitely a methodical person. I love book lists. I, I think for me, it's a monetary issue like I have my Amazon book list and I have my Goodreads book list but the truth is I can't afford to buy new books all the time ah, we may be and different so kinds of people you and I I'm, I'm limited to what I have at hand and I, I don't know I actually I should become a book list person and like actually use the books that I have instead of wishing for ones that I don't have mm. that would probably serve me better but no i i'm a very methodical person and so i i would probably do well so to do let that. Me, hang on hang on, hang on you're a methodical person but not a book list person 
Is that what I'm no, hearing? She's you say? saying she makes a ton of book lists. In fact, I'm I'm starting to think that your Amazon book list or your Goodreads book list might be a good source for a Christmas idea. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they yes, are would. huge. They're yeah, there are hundreds of books. I was going to interject though on the topic of your being methodical, and just to clarify for everyone. Emily reads all of the printed matter between the covers of a book. Oh my gosh. Copyright date and the before. end notes. And she reads everything, all of it. But you're all, you're the kind awesome. of reader that uh, I have noticed that is kind of always plugging away too. But I'm the kind of person who needs to have something handed to me. So I think this is why I don't have a book list. I can't make one for myself. I need someone to step in and be like, this is your book list. It's due next month or whatever. I'm a student. And so uh, I, I don't form my own book lists. So yeah, it has to be an assignment given to you by a teacher. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, that's very interesting. A very different answer. Um, let's go to the source, Missy, the queen of the book inveterate lists. book list maker. How do you do it? <laughs> and more importantly, why? Okay. So I love book lists. Um, I love reading people's book lists. I love creating book lists for people. I love creating book lists in general. And here's why. I think that the stuff that goes on your book list says an awful lot about what you think is important. And you can get to know somebody by reading their book list. In addition, um, when I put things on a book list, it's obviously because I think they're important. And I, when I create a book list for an individual, it's sort of a way to love them because I think, oh, they'll love this. And I think they would really enjoy this and profit from it. And when you create a book list for an individual, you're thinking deeply about who they are and what makes them tick, what they would, um, what they would, would uh, connect with, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, and enjoy and benefit from. And so it's an act of service. So your love language is book list. It's one of my love languages. I think that's probably not, that's not going too far afield to say that that's one of my love languages. And it doesn't just go that way um, towards the person I'm making the list for. When I put a book list together, um, it's sort of like revisiting old friends, you know, because those books, most of what goes on the book list for someone else are books that I've read myself and enjoyed. And, um, you know, some, for a variety of different reasons, sometimes because of the characters, sometimes because of the thematic content, sometimes because I agreed with them and sometimes I like to argue with them, whatever it is, you know, but they're known quantities for me and, um, writing them down in book list format allows me to shape a conversation of sorts about mm -hmm. ideas and to kind of have it again in my mind with the author's. But if I'm, if I'm creating it for maybe for a student, I am envisioning the kind of conversation that they're going to have, the experience they're going to have as they read these books with understanding. And I think that's, that's what I want to talk about. I don't know if this is what you guys have in mind in, in throwing this question around. But I'm interested in the question of what we're hoping to achieve with the book <sighs> list. Oh, Me that's too. Yes. Totally legitimate. Absolutely. Because I get concerned sometimes when I read book lists in particular, um, really high-reaching book lists that are written for classical schooled kids, right? And I'm all for a difficult book list. I, I think that I'm with Mortimer Adler, that um, it's really important to, to put books on the list that the student wouldn't naturally read if they were just left to themselves. Because, you want to stretch them, right? Yeah, just they need to be stretched. But I think there's a difference between stretching a student 
that is um, letting them from where they stand reach up and grab something that's just slightly out of reach on their tippy toes and then pull themselves up, developing muscle along the way so that Mm -hmm. they can interact with um, an unequal mind. That is, um, we can't learn, he says, from books necessarily um, by peers because they don't stretch us at all. Mm-hmm. There, when you go to a book to learn from it, you assume an inequality. That is that the, the writer knows something that you want to know, and but you don't yet, right? Those kinds of books are the ones that we can really grow when we read. So we want that, but we don't want the inequality to be so great that there's no place to stand for the student to reach up and grasp it. If there's no point of connectivity, if there's no context for the book or the content or the ideas contained within it, then we, I think we, we ask too much of the children. And in the end, I think what we do is we develop a hatred for reading in them. Um, worse, sometimes they will go ahead and run their eyes over the material and not understand it pass a, a content-based test where, you know, they're just spitting back facts, but they've never really intellectually never dealt with it. owned the material so that yeah. they really understand the purpose of it. Um, but they walk away feeling that they've already read that, which kind of arms them later to not have to deal with that classic again, because clearly there's a distaste in their mind for it because they didn't understand it. It was completely opaque and it was too hard and they've already read that anyway. And you know, we might be talking about, I don't know, Moby Dick or, you know, one of the great classics of Western civilization. So, so Ms. what are you suggesting then in your impulse to create lists for other people, which is, of which creating book lists for students is a logical, you know, ca- case? Um, does the, is the suggestion here that the, an, a concept of who the student is and what makes that student tick is equally as important a factor as what are the great books that that kid ought to be reading at some point? Yes. Yeah, I really Hmm. do think so. Which gives homeschool parents kind of an edge because you know your kid, you know where they (laughs) are, um, you know where you want them to be, you know, you know what your goals are for them in terms of developing as readers and thinkers. Um, But even in a, a classroom environment where you can't necessarily take into account the particular interests the strengths and the deficiencies of every single child in the classroom. You're looking more generically at their reading level. There are um, stages of life when you encounter particular things and grow emotionally in particular ways, before which you you just really aren't prepared to interact with them. For example, um, in thinking about this, uh, preparing for the podcast today, I did some reading online of book lists. Um, which was easy for me to do. <laughs> and one of the things it's like I me found, reading the football news. Yeah, exactly. It's dad looking at stats. I like to look at book lists. And I noticed that in, in one particular book list that I pulled up, um, they put Stephen Crane's Red Badge of Courage uh, in the sixth grade reading list. And I thought, Ooh. wow, you know, why did they do that? And immediately what came to mind is it's short, it's American. Um, because it's more recent than a lot of things you could put on the book list, it's a little more approachable linguistically speaking, and it's got the word courage in it. And frankly, I think that's relatively misleading because most teachers and parents think that that means it's going to be a book about somebody who's courageous or somebody who wasn't courageous and learned to be courageous, which is, I think, what a lot of people do with that book when they read it. They come away thinking, oh, well, the first time he went out into battle, he was a coward. But after that, he learned how to be courageous. And in the end, he was a successfully courageous young man. Woohoo! 
which misses the point altogether because the book is really about, um, it's about whether or not courage is a possibility in a world that is purely material. It questions the viability of, of the goods, virtue, sure. courage. But so all that, those it seems to me though, that that adds a piece to the discussion. You can't add a book to a book list, which you haven't read. Well, I think that's really true. You have to be careful which, when you're which, creating a book I mean, that list. sounds like a common sense thing to say, but it kind of isn't. I mean, no. there are lots of people who would sit down to craft a book a book list for high school students who would go, well, let's put the Odyssey on there. Right. Because every high school kid should read the Odyssey. The Odyssey, right? And you get yourself in all kinds of trouble by, by doing it that way. You have to include stuff that you've read. So well, are you saying that maybe there's a, there's a place for book lists that don't include any of those big names, but do include books that the teacher is familiar with and that with whose thematic content they're, uh, they're capable of teaching well. Well, yes, of course. But what I was going to say about that is that um, my sixth grader, I might not want to confront with the idea of materialism and whether or not um, as a result of the idea of materialism, philosophically, there's such a thing as courage. Mm-hmm. I might not want to do that to my 12-year-old quite yet. It's oh, not that there won't ever be no. a time to have that conversation with them, but it will be after they're equipped to think about those philosophical ideals once they're grounded in some some other truths that I think are more important. <laughs> you know, So right. age appropriateness um, comes into play, um, emotional maturity, um, intellectual maturity, and I'm not willing to say that that these books don't push a person toward intellectual maturity. Of course they do, but we want to be careful how soon we give our students these things. The question also comes up in my head that you're you are um, kind of chipping away a little bit at the assumption we all sort of hold when it comes to academic book list, assigning book lists to our kids, assembling curriculum materials for our students. That you're chipping away at the idea that there is a canon of mm. great books that every sixth grader should read, that every eighth grader should read, that every high school kid should read, and suggesting that maybe, but but perhaps equally important, these are individuals that are confronting these book lists and issues about their ability to effectively do that ought to be near the top of our list of priorities. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we want to choose books from which the students can profit through focused effort, right? Okay. But I want to, I want to, um, come back at you and push back a little bit and maybe, um, Ian and Emily get your, your input on this idea. Isn't there a case to be made for the fact that regardless of whether you are particularly capable of it, of, of mining its depths and getting the most out of it, you should probably read the Odyssey at some point. Well, surely, surely. Wait, hang on a second. I want to get Emily. What do you say to that? Yeah, I mean, yes, but I'm just over here thinking like the hard thing is that when I look at my great book set that's sitting in our living room, um, there's not hardly a single title that I feel like a high schooler is prepared for. Uh Um, Maybe snippets of it, maybe piecemeal introduction, Mm -hmm. but uh the great books are for adults. Mm-hmm. They're for developed minds who um, who have experience to draw on to understand them. And that's not to say that you don't need an introduction to them at some point. I think that's appropriate. But uh, I don't know, the, the line between those things is a difficult one, maybe. 
that you're preparing them for a lifetime of reading the great books. And that sometimes doesn't include reading the great book. Has this ever been said in our circles before so clearly? The great books are for adults. Well, some of them are. You know, what do we say to that? Well, but I, before we before we present a counterpoint to that, I want to keep exploring it for just a second. Go, because I think I I think I agree that by and large the great book. And when we say, I mean, we have to do some defining of our terms, right? When we say the great books, what we're talking about is when I look at you and say, "What was on your college book list?" and and you say the Iliad and the Odyssey. If you went to a good school, you say the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid and Dante's Inferno, and you you rattle off that list. Those are all written for grownups. Can we agree on that? Does everybody agree with that? Okay, but I mean, I, we teach the Odyssey in our high school classes. I think it's appropriate. There's a it, it matches the reading level. There's content that they can handle. I'm not saying that those like they need that's that's possible. I'm thinking like there are ancient philosophers in there, and there are you know like uh, Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. Well, and there's also a, there's a place for being exposed to. Um, those books the first time and realizing that when you revisit them later, you're going to probably get more out of them. Exactly. That doesn't preclude an initial introduction. I guess what I'm on about is not um, that you can't read any of the great books until you're fully grown and mature enough to interact with them all the way down to the bottom. It's considering their content and asking the question of whether or not we would want our student exposed to that um, philosophical content and when. Right, And I guess what I'm saying is that I don't think it's the job of the high school education to take off the books on the great books list, mm-hmm. that to the ah. extent that you can introduce certain ones is that's appropriate and good. And you want to prepare them for reading but, them. So yes. then what's the main thing you ought to be doing yeah. in a high school classical education when it comes to literature? Well, giving Emily. them the tools to read the great books. That's right. And uh, sometimes that includes introducing them to a great book. And sometimes that includes reading good books. That's right. Okay, but it occurs to me that, and I want to go back to something we talked about earlier, the difference between learning and enjoyment that we were talking about a second ago, right? You can't learn from books written by your peers. Um, One requires the other and vice versa. In order to someday enjoy the great books that we're not all trying to tick off in our high school educations, Mm -hmm. what we're going to have to do is learn how to read. Right. And, and And so sometimes putting a kid through a book that's just a little bit beyond their reading level it's going to be like pulling teeth. They're going to hate it. They may, in fact, hate it for the rest of their lives. That's a risk you're going to have to take as a teacher. Right. Because they're never going to enjoy it if they aren't forced to learn how to talk about it, how to understand it, how to engage with it. How right? to read it. Yeah, absolutely. So that tension for a high school teacher in particular and for, I guess, all the way down for, for a pre-college uh, education specialist, you need to be thinking about the tension between enjoyment and learning pretty constantly. So I think that it would be appropriate to put the example on the table and flush it out as as something tangible to hang our hats on. Because the reason we started this conversation is an example came up in our lives where um, a teacher is being made to teach Moby Dick in the high school classroom and can't the administration won't let them change that book for one of Melville's smaller works or whatever. It has to be Moby Dick. It has to be Moby Dick, and they have to do it in a very short time period with high school So why are we uncomfortable with that in a way that we're not uncomfortable with putting the Odyssey in our online academy? Vanity project. Great question. Go, Ian. Vanity project. That's what it sounds like to me. What it sounds like is a school putting together its curriculum 
for the sake of its credentials. But why? Why? Moby Dick's a great book. It's a great book like the Odyssey is a great book. So why? Well, one of the justifications I heard for that decision, um, it sounds a little bit like what Ian was saying a minute ago. Um, uh, The administration is afraid that since Moby Dick is daunting and long and has boring chapters about whaling in it that drive readers away, if they're not forced to interact with it in school, they never will. And won't that be a tragedy? Because it's one of the great books of all time. This is our chance, the administration is saying, to expose people that will otherwise never have this exposure to Moby Dick. Which kind of, um, I don't know, it betrays their their philosophy that students they will learn to love to read at their school. Because yeah. they're they're so determined that everything that a person should read must have been read by the time they graduate from high school or they'll never read it. Right. I mean, I'm thinking that one, one, a different way to handle it would be to assign the kids Billy Budd by Herman Melville, get Uh them a taste for Melville's voice and Melville's philosophy and Melville's ability to construct a plot and tell a story and prepare them as Missy's suggesting for, uh, for Moby Dick when they're a little older and more mature. Isn't that yeah. what you're, what you're implying, Missy? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I guess what I'm suggesting is that we use the opportunity that we have in the elementary and secondary levels to develop a taste for good books in our students and to equip the students, like Emily said, to read them well so that their minds, they learn to read as awake readers. Mm-hmm. They learn to um, to engage with the authors, with the great authors that they're coming across, to ask the questions that the authors are posing with their works of fiction with them, and to engage with their answers, to discover their answers, and then engage with their answers, so that they learn that reading is having a conversation with an absent participant. And it takes a lot of focus. It takes knowing the right questions to ask in order to discover the answers that the authors are, are providing. It takes paying close attention to what the author is saying, but it's doable and rewarding. And if the student can learn that, he'll get a taste for experiencing the conversation. He'll want to know the breadth of the conversation, and he won't stop participating in it when he graduates from no high school. And yeah. it's no longer required. And it's no longer required. Hmm. You know, yeah, it does I guess, seem to indicate sort of a lack of faith in your own methodology, doesn't it? I by really the, think if it you does. Jam all the content into them. By the time their free will kicks in, they'll never read again. <laughs> because really, reading is like taking your medicine. So quick, right. let's take our medicine before um, we can't force them to take or, the medicine anymore. Or reading is um, reading is something that is perfectly symbolized and embodied by a book list mm-hmm. instead of a a facet of of human nature instead of an angle of conversation. I mean, that's one of the reasons the book list is problematic as a paradigm because it, it betrays the assumption that knowledge is a discrete list of facts, right. that education mm. is the completion of a curriculum, that all we got to do is get to the end of the list and we've actually done something when mm. in fact we haven't, we can get to the end of a list of anything and not really accomplish what we set out to accomplish. If what we set out to accomplish with reading is a is an enriching and a deepening of our souls, who's to mm-hmm. say that happens every time you get to the end of a book list? I'll bet sometimes it doesn't. But by yeah. the same token, the deep, organic reading of a single book can provide all kinds of 
enrichment for the soul. And it doesn't have to be a, uh, a book written for grownups either, says the guy who teaches picture books on the convention circuit. Yeah, I'll never right. forget having that conversation with Mike Bauman years ago when he called to ask if there was any way he could, he could help me. And I was just putting together your um, freshman uh, book list, Ian. And, you know, thinking, oh, here we go. We're into the high school realm now. This It all counts now, you know, <laughs> wanting to get this book list just right. And I said, yes, you can help me. Can you tell me what you would have someone who's going to sit in your classroom um, have read by the time they come to you? And he said, absolutely. Do you have a pencil? And I was like, wow, we're getting right to it, you know? And he gives me like three books. And he says, um, uh, Paradise Lost, the Bible, of course. Um, uh, Augustine's Confessions. Augustine's Confessions and a book by Richard Mitchell called The Gift of Fire. And read the, if you haven't read it, read that one first, and then the others will make sense. So I read The Gift of Fire, and um, it's basically a, a, a philosophical treatise on education. What is an education? How do you get one? Why is it important? And um, at the bottom of it was his argument that education is not a book list, that it has something more to do with wisdom, which has a lot to do with coming up against yourself and seeing who you are and who you're not. And that did illuminate his, his book choices and the reason his list was so short and made me think about the fact that um, you might be able to get an education with one book if you learn to read it properly, whereas... I feel like a lot of times because we equate the um, we, we equate an education with hard books on a book list. If our right. kids have read these hard books that are really recognized, and then that's lists. the mark. Yeah, that's the mark of intelligence. How many hard books have they read? Not how well have they read those hard books, right? Do they understand them? Do they identify the significant things in them? Why they're significant? Um, what about them? relates to the human condition or, or whatever the subject matter on the table with that particular piece might be. Um, these are the things that, that we're really writing these book lists for, I hope. We are trying to introduce the kids to human thought about the ultimate things, the universal things um, throughout history. Mm -hmm. And we can't do all that at once. We can't do all that in four years of secondary school. That takes a lifetime. What we can hope to do is introduce the student to how to read to engage with that conversation. What kind of questions we have to ask in order to understand the authors and their purposes so that they can read for a lifetime. I think that's our goal. Absolutely. So it sounds like um, there's that, that we're delivering a little pushback against two elements of the kind of the reading list mentality. One of them is that the books need to be hard. Mm -hmm. And the second one is that the list needs to be long. And I wonder if, and I, and I would certainly, I would certainly get behind that perspective as a curriculum designer. I would always want to want parents and teachers to cheat in the direction of um, more accessible books and fewer of them. But I wonder if that is a rule or a, an idea that might help us as private readers too. I mean, I wonder if the reason we have a hard time getting to the list, like Ian said at the beginning, is that the list is too long and becomes onerous just to look at, and the books are too hard. I don't know. What do you think of that, Ian? I mean, maybe. I, I don't think that, um, that many of the books on my list are probably too difficult. I mean, you're a grown up after all. 
Yeah, when you end up being an adult, it turns out (laughs) it's not that they're too hard, but sometimes it might um, it might be that the reason they're famous and the reason they're great has more to do with academic things than with them being all that enjoyable. Mm. And well, it depends um, on what you mean by enjoyable, though, right? Because there's something innately enjoyable in understanding. Okay, sure. And there's a time and a place you, for the kind of enjoyable You are a lifelong meant. academic, though. I mean, you, school is your favorite. Yeah, but I, I also favorite. really enjoy reading for pleasure. And some books are more pleasurable in the way that you mean than others. But mm-hmm. there is real pleasure in reading something that I didn't understand, in coming out the other end, understanding. You actually had that experience with Moby Dick, if I remember right. Yes, I, I was, did. I was living with you on a regular basis while you were trying to read Moby Dick. And the, your first time through, you said, this is a horrible book. I really hate this. I am not enjoying this. I, I slogged my way through that whale of a tail. I mean, I'm not kidding. It was long. But... When I started to study it, after I'd done the work of reading it, and I went back through having considered the book and all of its parts, figured out what the author might be doing here, and then went back and saw how he did it, I really enjoyed the book. I, I came to right. admire I him as an author, and it was really pleasurable. But you mm-hmm. had to get through the part that was work in order to um, access the pleasure. Right. And I agree. That's what we're talking about a second ago, that tension between learning and enjoyment. The learning may not be enjoyable, but it's the key to enjoying it later. And all of that is still true. But I'm talking about a grown-up's reading list here. Um, you don't have to try and read Plato every time you pick up a book, for Pete's sake. Right. Right? Agreed. I mean, um, maybe the key to getting into your reading list is developing a little rhythm yes. by organizing it from easy to hard and starting at the easy end. I mean, I uh-huh. I think the impulse for those of us who are academics or intellectuals or even just for those of us who are serious people who care about reading because we want to grow our own minds and become better thinkers, the impulse is to go find the stuff we know for sure is good. And nine times out of 10, that's the hard stuff. Yeah, I, uh, I agree with wrong. you. I don't think I'm saying anything that's really outlandish. No, you're actually saying exactly the same thing that we're saying when we're talking about how to create book lists for our students, that you don't right. want to put things on the book list that are so far over their head that they couldn't begin to reach up to even do the hard work of pulling themselves up by it, right? Right. They can't grow right. with a book like that. It's too far over their heads. Mm-hmm. What you want to do is give them books that make them stretch And then the next time you can give them a book that makes them stretch a little more. And that way they're climbing, right? Mm -hmm. They're growing into better readers so that eventually they will be able to um, have a conversation with those great writers of the Western tradition that they couldn't even begin to understand initially, right? They'll look at some of those books that, that initially they looked at and think, oh, that's not that hard. I can read that. But they couldn't have read it when they were, you know, in the second grade. It would have been a David Copperfield of a book. Exactly. It would have been like that time I, I gave you David Copperfield to read and you were what? I, I don't know. Were you 15 even? It I prejudiced him four. against the first person narrative <laughs> for did. his whole life. He said, I hate iBooks. Yeah. <laughs> first, first person is rough, man. Well, no, it was, it was the combination, I think, of David Copperfield and Robinson Crusoe, which you had to read like in the same year. And pretty soon we hand you a book and you give you this, this suspicious look and say, is that, <laughs> is that an, an iBook? Yeah. Yeah. I remember. I, I think the other thing that came out of your David Copperfield experience is no book should be, or see, 
an, an introduction shouldn't be 400 pages. That's right. Or something Seven. Like that. It's a 900 page novel. The expo, what we would call, we literary types would call the introduction to the story, the exposition where the author is laying out what he's going to be talking about, introducing you to the main players of the story and setting up the world so that the conflict can take over and tell the story. It takes the first 700 pages of a 900 page book. It and should, that's a crime. To the plot sooner than that. <laughs> well, he was. I've been told work. recently. I will say I've been told recently by some readers whom I very much respect and friends of mine that um, I was indeed too young to form an opinion. Yes. About David Copperfield, which means I owe it another chance. Yeah, and that's never exactly. going to happen. You owe it another chance. It may. Here's the There's thing. There's some things along the list ahead of it, though. Sorry. I mean. <laughs> Okay, so but you get to my point exactly. I wonder sometimes as educators, <laughs> we make this a mistake, right, of pushing our kids not to read timeless classics, but to read classics before it's time. Yeah, Ooh, right? nicely said. We want them to pithy. read the timeless classics. We want them to spend their lifetime reading really worthy books, right? Mm -hmm. But if we give them those worthiest of books before they have any context at all, to be able to understand them, um, we kind of do violence to the project in the long run, I think, because yeah. we prejudice mm -hmm. them against them. Against the work it takes, yes. against the, the fact that the pleasure that well, comes from reading is sometimes hard won. Because they, can't, they cannot, no matter how hard they try, experience any of that pleasure. The pleasure comes in the reward of getting understanding right? If they're never going to be able to understand, not even if they do the hard work of reading and thinking about it, well, then it's a vain, futile, um, futile effort. And yeah. nobody likes futility. You can't like that. I agree. No futility. A pox on all futility. Listen to this. This is, this is Mortimer Rather. He says, good books are over your head. They would not be good for you if they were not. And books that are over your head weary you unless you can reach up to them and pull yourself up to their level. It is not the stretching that tires you, but the frustration of stretching unsuccessfully because you lack the skill, and I would interject here, maybe the maturity, to stretch effectively. Mm. That comes from his How to Read a Book, which I, I uh, heartily recommend. Mm. So at, uh, here at the end of our little conversation... Uh, anybody's ideas about their own personal book list undergone any modification? I didn't, by the way, while you're thinking about that, I didn't weigh in on my own uh, book list making career and philosophy thereof. You guys want to hear it? Have you made any? Yeah. No, you just gave it away. <laughs> well, dang. <laughs> you gave it away. I'm sorry. I am a terrible book list maker and I'm actually a terrible reader. No, you're not. Yes. I don't read as much as, as my wife or my daughter-in-law. Who are both avid readers, and I feel condemned about it. And no, I also I like that you excluded me from <laughs> oh that list. Oh my gosh, that's so silly. That was awesome. I also read extremely quickly, and so rarely read with the kind of deep understanding that my wife and daughter-in-law read with. And so I tend to shun the whole concept of a book list as a list of assignments that I will never faithfully complete. Does it, does it, do you shun it because it judges you and finds you lacking? Yes. I so do. you oh. see the book list as a law that must be kept just like Ian. Yes. Or there's this, it's either a law that must be kept and I probably can't keep it or a list of books that I have successfully read. And so like a diary of uh -huh. books, uh -huh. I, and, and I think I got this idea from, um, 
I was doing research in American history in graduate school, and I came across the personal diary book list, reading list of um, Samuel Johnson, the um, the dictionary man, right. the 18th century uh, English philosopher who put together the first dictionary. And he, um, I saw the first couple pages, and there were you know six or eight or ten or twelve or fifteen or twenty titles, and I thought, well, this guy read a lot of books in his lifetime. And then I realized that that was the first six pages of a 200-page diary, and he had read hundreds upon hundreds and thousands upon thousands of books and re- faithfully recorded them in his diary. And for some reason, I don't know, I was young and impressionable or something, I thought, I could never do that. And that was pretty much the end of it. At that point, I thought, that is, it's impossible to be as well-read as Samuel Johnson, and so I'm never going to even try. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> Yeah, that is. That's terrible. And so in terms of book list making, I've never gone to making a diary of the books I've read. And I look at a list and I think, oh, I'll probably never get to it. And and one of the reasons I like to have this conversation is because I think that's a very immature way to look at the reading list. And I think it can be a pretty good tool if you use it uh, yeah. in you know, some of the ways that you guys are talking about. And it's always good for me to remember that. Because I do read of it. I mean, I, I, I'm overstating it to say that I'm a terrible reader. I do read pretty regularly. Just not as... I do read. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we all hope so. (laughs) I just don't do it as self-consciously as I think you guys do. And I think it's probably not as effective as a result. But having said that, what do you think? Are are our general ideas about the concept of the book list undergone any modification in this little discussion we've had? Well, I hope so. I mean, I I love talking about this because it gets me encouraged and excited um, to make more (laughs) book lists. (laughs) No, oh, but really, <laughs> <laughs> and be a better teacher because really, um, teaching is loving your students. And one of the things I think involved in loving your students is knowing them, um, looking for ways to connect with them. You know, when you think about loving your spouse or, um, loving your child, what are you always trying to do? You're trying to find common ground to connect with them so that you can build a relationship with them. And a book list should be created with that in mind, really. If you know the person or the group of people that you're creating the book list for, you want to create that book list in such a way that it connects with them and that it serves them. It's an act of service, really. And you have such an opportunity to shape a conversation with them through considering the ideas that the different authors are discussing. Um, There are a variety of different ways to create book lists with this in mind, one is to, to create a thematic book list, right? Maybe you want to go ahead and engage a conversation about what it means to be human. And so every single book that you choose that year, um, regardless of the title, engages that question. So when they've gotten done reading for the year, you can say, well, what did so-and-so say about what it means to be a human being? And did this other author agree with him or disagree with him? How? Why? And you can have a syntopical, that's what our Adler would call it, a syntopical conversation across the topics about this great idea and talk about what, what the, the consensus is among the great minds of the Western tradition about this idea. And then say, now, what do you think? Having read all of these ideas and in- entertained their thoughts and understood where they come from, do you agree? Do you disagree? Um, where do you find common ground with these authors? And where do you depart? Right? Hmm. This is a worthy conversation. And 
you're doing the kids such a service and helping them to have it mm-hmm. because it's important for them at some point to consider what manner of creature they are. They're going to have to come up against what is a human being and what am I? What's our purpose? Um, what is a man and what isn't he? Mm-hmm. And um, n- coming across this conversation in, in great books is a way to foster a growing contemplation of it in the individual. And that's not just true about what it means to be human. That's true about all the great ideas. That is encouragement to go ahead and make the list or work your way down it at your own pace, I suppose. Any other final thoughts on the subject of the book list, of, the, of curriculum development, of personal reading? Shall we adjourn and reconvene later for another scintillating discussion of topics, literary, academic, and otherwise? Hey, thanks, guys, for letting us um, opine about our trip to Europe. That was fun. That was fun. Oh, that was so fun. Yeah. Ridiculously fun. Well, we appreciate you tuning in, all you um, listeners out there, to another edition of Bibliophiles. We will be with you shortly with a further one. Thanks again for tuning in, my friends. Until we meet again, happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone. <laughs>